Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. Featuring sysadmin expert, Don Pizzette. Security specialist, Daniel Lowry. And Peter. Hello and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. I am not Don Pizzette, but he is right here in the studio with me. Don, how's it going today? It is going great. Another great podcast lined up today, so I'm looking forward to talking about some of the different technologies that are out there and a lot of big news. They're all great podcasts until we get started. Yeah, can't really judge them until they're over. And yeah. We're like, oh, all right, it wasn't so great. And, and the reason why, <laughs> Daniel, how you doing? Yeah. I'm I'm going to stab you. <laughs> See, it's already off. That's going to be a great podcast. It's, it's important well, to Peter, set attainable goals. Peter screams like a weird person. Uh-huh. I do. Yeah, turn your speakers down because I will be screaming like a lady. Uh, and we are joined also by Mohit Tiwari, who is the CEO and co-founder of Symmetry Systems. How you doing? Hey, Brad, doing great. How are you? Oh, there he is. Okay, I got, I got scared for a second. I'm doing good. Good to have you on. And you're, you're in Austin, Texas, is that right? I, I was in Austin, Texas oh. until a couple months ago, and we just moved. I just moved to San Francisco. Oh, beautiful. All right. That, that's like the opposite of all the stories say. we keep hearing yeah. about people leaving California. You've uh... Going to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> you said the rent is just not is high like... enough here in Austin. No, no. I, I need a uh, two-man tent for 1200 a month. <laughs> 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 no, it's good. Uh, I feel like it made a lot of sense for uh, our family. My wife was starting a job at UCSF, so uh, the decision was not in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> So he wants to be in Austin is what yeah. I just heard, basically. <laughs> when it's raining and, uh, and foggy can, in San Francisco. I can feel the resentment building up inside of him. <laughs> <laughs> you said something about the rent, and, you know, it's a uh, That, that triggered him. Tri- he's hard no... triggered. <laughs> yeah, you just basically got to find somewhere to squat, I think, and, and you'll be offset. But uh, we'll, we'll learn in this first segment a little bit about that relationship with uh, – with the University of Texas in Austin uh, as we get to know Mohit in our first segment, Rapid Fire Questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? All right, so what we're going to do is run through a couple of Rapid Fire Questions. You'll be given one minute to answer the question. If you run over, Peter will buzz you. There we go. Uh, and then we'll just move on to the next question. So it's a great chance to learn a little bit about you. We'll rotate through each person. Peter, you're going to kick it off. I still haven't buzzed anybody yet because it just feels so rude to do. But, <laughs> <laughs> but just know that that threat is, is there. Um, so for first and foremost, just uh, what can you tell us about Symmetry Systems and, uh, and DataGuard, I guess, is your, is your main product there. So what can you tell us about the two? Right. So Symmetry Systems is the leading provider. And it, we introduced us the concept of data firewalls. And the idea is across all your data stores, across your clouds, um, you need a way to keep an eye on, measure your data risk, and then improve it. So this drives compliance and both security. And this, this isn't my rapid fire question. I'm going to cheat a little bit here. <laughs> Go but, for it. Uh, you mentioned like data across your environment. Are you talking about like uh, documents or databases? What, what do you mean by that? Right, so data stores. So you have you know, object stores like S3, which is in the news for many reasons all the time. There are SQL data stores like you know, MySQL, Oracle, and stuff, and there are NoSQL data stores. So each of these have very different security controls around them. And for a security team or a DevOps team, it's just really hard to answer the question, where is my most risky data? How is it protected? Who is accessing it? Right? How do I drive down data risk? Um, so we just want to give like a very DevOps-centric, you know, tool that scales across your data stores, across your cloud environments. So even if you have hundreds of millions of objects in S3, terabytes of data in SQL and SQL data stores, you should be able to understand where the data risk is and then drive down that data. Well, let's get back to the uh, the origin of the company. I think Peter dropped a hint on this. Uh, you know, we, we're down here in Gainesville, Florida, right next to the University of Florida, and we get to see a lot of companies, yeah. startups kind of come out of the university system. Is that what happened with you guys? Yeah. Absolutely. So University of Florida is great. They have a really good cybersecurity operation uh, going on. So for us, uh, the story was similar. We started doing this research in 2011. Around 2013, 14, we worked with hospitals, you know, whose motto was healthcare happens outside the hospital, very relevant now, then with DARPA, DOD, NSA, and then it's cloud providers. So at some point they were all like, hey, we would like to go to production with this. And we're like, okay, we're just a, so students and faculty. So then last year we spun out formally as a company and got 
cybersecurity focusing restaurants like ForgePoint. And since then, we've been growing the company, the research as a company. Now, it's my understanding that you developed this for the big three, right? The healthcare, finance, and, and government. But from what you're saying, it sounds like this would be applicable to other industries as well. Is that the case, or is it just for those those certain no, specific that, industries? No, you're 100% right. So, you know, there's this um, concept of who are the early adopters and kind of, of technology, and then it kind of drains out to the rest of the uh, organizations or verticals. Uh, we picked these three because they are big compliance drivers for why they should stay on top of data risk, right? They are sitting on some of the most valuable data, whether it's healthcare or finance or for DOD, their attackers are not script kiddies or even you know small scale operations, there's nation states and such. So they need the highest quality security, but the tooling is built to be deployable on AWS, on GCP. So our motto is, a data guard for every data store. Like you should have um, symmetry data guard like products. We call the category data store and object security. And data guard is just one product in this category. So you need this DSOS, data store and object security category solutions. So, so uh, piggybacking. Piggybacking off of what Don said a little bit about multiple systems, this sounds like it's an ideal setup for kind of like a hybrid cloud, which, which is something we've been talking about a lot recently. If people, you know, don't necessarily just put all your stuff in in one basket when when we have outages and things. So, is is this a good setup for someone that's got? You mentioned GCP and and AWS and, and Azure. Right. Exactly. So we find that hybrid cloud. Um, uh, there's a lot of discussion whether it makes sense or not because you know you should just put all your eggs into one cloud and you know just focus on getting it right but what we find is that uh, different clouds have different strength so you know a lot of people use uh, google's tpu and you know, for ml training right but then they also use amazon s3 and ec2 for running their regular microservices so as a security team you are in charge of product people innovating using whichever tool is best for the job but they have to protect across the different clouds and for legacy reasons you know they are almost always sitting on on-prem data stores as well. So, yeah, go ahead. So, so I was going to ask you. You built this this system in a pre-COVID world, and then we roll it out, and and now everything changes. How has it affected um, your product, or or kind of the way you approach things for your customers? So, our customers got affected very massively, and I think that has bled down into everything that we have done. So for our customers, it has accelerated a push into moving at the very least, even in the worst case, they are lifting and shifting on-prem workloads into the cloud, right? And all the cloud providers have doubled down on getting all the compliance papers signed off and everything. So um, uh, our customers are moving to the cloud. They are having to figure out how to set up controls around their most valuable asset, their data. And we have had to essentially accelerate um, how much scale of the data that we, we we need to be able to handle, right? And the kinds of compliance we have, we are helping customers even with FedRAMP. So this is like the most stringent, you know, gov-related, uh, government-related compliance standard um, that typically you don't, you didn't need to do for your cloud workloads because you were deploying this in you know, people with guns kind of you know, data centers. Um, but now they have to do it on the cloud and get those things compliant with FedRAM, let alone SOC 2 and HIPAA and these simpler compliance standards. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I want to get to uh, uh, get to our next segment here, which uh, is our our worst IT nightmares, and find out a little bit about uh, what keeps you up at night. <laughs> worst IT nightmares. I love that intro. So, uh, so, so you look at at, uh, at security kind of a different way than than other people, I think. So, so what is it that that keeps you up at night? What what is your worst IT nightmare? So the one I can answer this with what has happened to someone on our team. So we have a pretty large team of uh, people in the core engine room, developers and such, but also a close set of advisors. So we get to hear a lot of IT nightmares. And the worst one that I heard recently was, um, you know. There was a master database, it fell down, this you know, backup database was coming up, and then the master woke up. And there was inconsistency, which was really egregious. And customer tenant A's data got sent to B, B's to C, C to D, and so on. Right. And the production team sitting there thinking, holy crap, what just happened? 
I need, I have 72 hours, you know, based on GDPR and CCP and stuff to notify people affected. And I could inform all our customers that look, all of your data is busted and now I'm in line for a huge fine. Or I have to quickly figure out which objects, data objects got sent to which person. And that was hard because 72 hours, you have no logs of this activity. This reverse engineering, what could have happened is really stressful time for the, for the team. So what, what did they do? <laughs> So in this case, they ended up kind of trying to put, you know, worst case assumptions on like which sessions were up or which, you know, connections got created. Uh, but a lot of this stuff happens over HTTP, HTTPS, or so on, right? So it's it's really hard to. So they had to like over approximate the set of potential customers that could have been affected, and you know, just inform them all that hey, we don't know if you were or not, but we suspect you were. So. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an example of like, you know, honesty is the best policy. You do under GDPR, you've got 72 hours to notify. And if you can't prove that there wasn't a breach and you know, you're supposed to reach out and tell everybody that there might have been, because if you don't and like a week later you figure it out, then those big penalties come rolling in. Now, something I know a lot of people overlook is that when you deploy in the cloud, they usually have some really amazing logging functionality. Like in, in AWS, you have CloudTrail. And CloudTrail is turned on for just a few things by default. But you can ratchet it up and get really amazing logging and see what's going on. But it's just not on unless you make that effort. And I, get, I guess that's really true of any kind of security, that it's up to you to actually get in there and implement it correctly and protect your data. And, and that's, I mean, that's basically what your company does, right, Mohit? Right, exactly. Exactly. So you hinted at CloudTrail. That's really good. And CloudTrail data events, that's like a fire hose of activity. And CloudTrail is available for certain AWS native services, but if you are deploying MySQL or Postgres you know, on RDS, then you have to go in and enable that for each of those types of services. So it's quite painful. I think if there's a way to just make it the default way to spin up and maintain infrastructure, uh, it would really help drive these kind of incidents uh, to completion faster. Yeah, I've never actually thought about like a situation like that where we talk a lot about, you know, ransomware attacks where you, you lose something and then you're you're restoring from the backup. Uh, and, and so that's your your new database and you've got, um, you know, every, everything's lost kind of in between that time. But but you got something new you're writing to. But if that other one all of a sudden comes back or you you figure out the key and you're able to unencrypt it, you know, how do you resolve those kind of issues? I know. I mean, I hit that all the time in OneDrive where. Don's editing a file, and I just say, yeah, just go with whatever Don did. I think that's the way to do it, I think. That's fair, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, um, there's a big rabbit hole there, and I see the time is only 1.30, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say. <laughs> no, go, go ahead down the rabbit hole. Let's figure this. Yeah, so I think like uh, there are two types of problems, right? One is that you breach someone's confidentiality, meaning that you, know, you took A's data and sent to B, or you know, someone just stole A, B, C, D, every tenant's data. And then the second one is what you just mentioned is like integrity or availability. And, you know, you almost need two very, you know, with confidentiality or data breach, the problem is that it can happen and you just don't even know about it, right? So how do you prove, like one of our uh, customers, our people that we're talking to, they, um, they did a regular pen test and they found that one of their applications had a vulnerability in the last six months, right? It was open to the internet, it had this vulnerability. Now the question is, did it get exploited? So from a data breach angle or confidentiality angle, you, it's really hard to answer. Like if it happens and the criminals don't come back and report to you, you just don't even know this happened. Right? Whereas with ransomware, you know it happened. Like your data is now you know, not accessible. It's encrypted, it's lying around, right? So it, these are two very different types of problems and um, just building a tool to be able to a, keep really good backups and being able to restore, that's, you know, that addresses to some fraction the ransomware problem, but it doesn't address the data breach problem at all. Well, and I know ransomware has kind of started turning into breaches, though. In, in the early days, you got hit with ransomware. Your, your stuff was encrypted, but at least it wasn't exfiltrated anywhere. So if you formatted and restored from a backup, you were back in business and you didn't have to notify customers. But now they'll encrypt your data and exfiltrate some of it. So even if you format and then restore from a backup, you've got uh, you know data and, and they'll they'll try and get a ransom for that. Like, hey, pay the ransom or we leak this. And we've seen a few high profile cases now where they've actually gone and leaked that data out. And 
you know, now it's just as bad as if they had yeah. done a like full technical breach. We, we had one last week, was it? That we were talking about a school system that, mm-hmm. that leaked in some Las data? Vegas. Yeah, so that's that's definitely worried. Well, I, I, you, I got you so worried about the clock there, but you were actually able to get all that in <laughs> right under the wire. So I, I'm sorry about threatening with the buzzer. It's uh, <laughs> it's very frightening, but but you'll be okay. I don't want to wake up at night being buzzed. <laughs> I mean, we we can shut your mic off if it comes to it, so don't worry about it. Uh, so if, if people want to find out more about Symmetry Systems, uh, what's the best way to reach out to you guys? Um, we, symmetry-systems.com is great. You know, you can watch the demo. There's contact us link. That's great. Um, Mohit, M-O-H-I-T, at symmetry-systems.com. Email me directly or t- tweet at us, Symmetry Systems, on, on Twitter. That's great. So, so I'm curious, what what is, like, the ideal... Uh, customer size for you. I mean, is it the the Fortune 500? I mean, obviously that's great. They they you know their their checks always clear. Uh, but is it is it them? Is it the you know the the mom and pop shop with with five or ten people? What's kind of that sweet spot that that really fits for Symmetry? Um, so I think for healthcare finance, if you're an AWS GCP Azure shop and you have let's say hundred or so plus engineers, right? That's great because now you're big enough that and you're making enough money that you're really worried about your customer's data and you need to protect it. If you're smaller than that, sometimes you know, just surviving is, is big enough problem that maybe you, know, you don't worry about it as much. Um, so I would say like any company that's about 100 engineers or so or 100 people or so and up uh, is a great candidate for reaching out to DataGuard. Spinning it up is easy. You can try it out even as a small team, but our ideal customer profile has some sort of regulated data on the cloud, 100 or so people. Perfect. And up, like we have a couple of Fortune 500. Yeah, don't don't turn them well. away. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, like we'll right. take them as well. <laughs> right, right. And, and and sometimes those kind of companies, a division might kind of almost right. look like a small business in that in that sense. So it kind of works in that way too exactly. that you're not working with the whole company, exactly. but uh, a lot of stuff is segmented there. Well, I just realized exactly. the the University of Texas uh, connection. I see you've got that Matthew McConaughey hair. <laughs> <laughs> so I can definitely, definitely see the connection. Well, uh, so symmetry-systems.com, uh, check it out and, and head over there. Well, Mohit, thank you uh, so much for taking the time with us today and, and, and sharing, sharing your nightmare as well with us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. You guys are really fun. Yeah. All right. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, stay tuned, everybody. We've got more Technado coming up right after this quick break. Need to create custom training videos and not sure where to start? The IT Pro TV studios are your answer. Whether you're creating end user training, employee training, a podcast, or general promotional videos, the IT Pro TV studio team is here to help. Choose the level of service that fits your needs, from ad hoc video production to the convenience of turnkey service. Available services include pre shoot consultation, recording, editing, makeup on-camera talent, and more. Choose from a variety of sets or customize the look using your own background displays and props. And if you think video is outside your budget, think again. The IT Pro TV studios are an affordable option with half, full, and multi-day rates available. Visit itpro.tv slash custom training to see the sets, view a detailed list of equipment, schedule a visit, and request your personalized quote. Don't stress about video creation. Let the IT Pro TV studio team bring your video ideas to life. Welcome back to TechNado with Don Pizzette, and we've got a lot of news to get to today, as Don alluded to. I think we actually have a bonus article at the end. Bonus. Yeah, so let's just jump right in. Our first article is from securityboulevard.com. Massachusetts Public School District cancels online classes after alleged cyber attack. And I can only assume this was from a student. Because in my day, yeah. we used to do bomb threats. That was, I mean, not we, I, you know, people. Yeah. Yeah. That was of the mine. first thing I thought when I read this. I was like, man, remember when people would call in a bomb threat? Like today, you'd go to Guantanamo if you did that. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or you, you had snow days. Uh, you, you, there were various things that got you out of school. And today, it's now hackers. Hackers, yeah. hacked, whatever. Uh, this story, I think, is going to end up being a little more complex because initially they were saying there were a series of power outages that were messing with their data centers. Then they said there was some kind of bug on the network, and now it turns out that it was actually ransomware. So their systems were getting encrypted by ransomware, and basically it shut down the teacher side of things. They had to stop classes. They are restoring their systems now. But uh, it's yet another victim of something that's fairly preventable you know good endpoint security staying on top of your network making sure your machines stay up to date could have avoided this now darn it these kids get a day off of school i know this world coming to all i see is a as a couple of kids like i got an idea if you go on this website on the tor network (laughs) then you can buy 
99 cents. Yeah, a ransomware attack, man. Totally worked for my cousin, and (laughs) I don't really want to do work today. Yeah, I got a test in third period, so if you could do it right before that, that would be great. Now, it said they canceled online classes. doesn't mention in-person, so I don't know. It says it affected 25,000 students, and this is the second largest school district in the state, is Springfield, Mm. Um, so I'm assuming not. Um, based on those numbers, it probably, uh, you know, they, they probably made all those kids come in and <laughs> yep. take that test yeah. still. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if they are able to to trace it back. I mean, who knows if it's, uh, well, I'm guessing I'm guessing the kid brags on Twitter or TikTok. <laughs> oh, yeah, probably TikTok. that's about how it works. I doubt this will get traced back to anything. Like the, the way the United States prosecutes any kind of cybercrime is almost a joke. <laughs> so, yeah. They just tell him, please don't do that it's again. Day off of school. Yeah, yeah. but I, I'm, if the kid's on there dancing on TikTok and saying he did it, I think we, we, have, to, we have to. I, I have heard that. stories that, like, they'll come and give you a stern talking to, like an FBI man will show up and go, listen, son, you think it's funny to take a day off of school and have a hee-haw with your friends? <laughs> well, that's the road to drugs, and the next thing you know, you'll be you know, probably a millionaire with your TikToking and whatnot. <laughs> Shit. Works. I mean, whatever. <laughs> what, Just do your thing. <laughs> what is the level of crime you have to commit to make something actually happen? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is I think exactly what happened in the Saved by the Bell episode where Zach That's Morris right. changed his grades mm-hmm. in the computers he he had the stern talking to. But yeah. again, not TikTok. expelled. Not yeah. expelled yet again. Uh, Mr. Belding just chained him to the radiator for a few days. <laughs> but that was the problem. The radiator was right next to the computer in Mr. Belding's yeah, office yeah, where he yeah. changed the grades. It's I think that was before it was on online. It was all just the local mainframe there, but <laughs> Yeah, similar story. Yeah, though, it sounds like very well, similar. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, but uh, as Don predicted, I don't think anything will happen, and uh, the kids will be back in school, and yeah. the ransomware attack will learned. start again the next day. All we've learned about cybersecurity came from Saved by the Bell. It did. It, it did. did. I wonder how much like they, it didn't mention how much the ransom was for or anything though, or how bad they got well, hit. So they they weren't admitting that it was ransomware. That one of their mm. their network people let that slip. So it's still a secret. <laughs> let that slip. Just like the security that allowed the ransomware to well, get I, there. I guess they don't have to report things because you know none of their students are in England. Yeah, it's no. not GDPR. Or in California. <laughs> yeah, we're in California. So they're like, you're in Massachusetts, yeah, kids. Yeah. We're not telling you. You're on your own. You Listen, can... what happens in Fight Club, right? <laughs> <laughs> what happens in Springfield, Massachusetts? Yeah. You know, when, when uh, Mohit was talking at the beginning of the episode about uh, how the University of Florida has a great cybersecurity group going on over there, uh, my reply, and actually, Peter, you, you went to UF, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I went to UF as well. And, uh, and that means that, uh, I don't know, about eight years ago, I got the letter in the mail letting me know that all my data had been stolen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, top-notch program. Yeah, way to go, guys. <laughs> You're like, what data did you have? My, my grades? Like, so, are those well, back there? then, social security number. Oh, because that was the number you used for everything. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Wh- which didn't seem smart when you think about it. Like, I have to write my social on every test and, and every paper I hand in? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah all right. That all checks out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, our, our next article uh, might actually relate back. Uh, this one is over at ZDNet.com. Microsoft and others orchestrate takedown of TrickBot botnet. Uh, FS, ISAC, ESET, Lumens, Black... Oh, jeez, I shouldn't have started <laughs> writing that part. Uh, yeah, a bunch, of, a bunch of agencies <laughs> participated in the takedown. So... Um, my question when reading this is, you know, if you if you took down a botnet, that's all the, the devices that might have been compromised um, over the course of, of the years that this was built up, because I think this one was several years, it said, since 2016. What's to stop it from just starting up again and, and starting yeah. to infect new new machines? So what what they did is the uh, the TrickBot botnet uh, had infected tons over a, I think it was over a million devices, if I recall correctly, uh, which were mostly IoT devices. So things like webcams and, and other devices where people might not even realize they're hacked. Like you, you'd notice if your laptop or your cell phone was hacked, but if your webcam is hacked, you might not know it. And it might be blasting off all sorts of stuff across the internet. So that's how TrickBot functioned. And basically, Microsoft and these other organizations, they, they recognize that you can't get all of these end users to go and update their devices. It's just not going to happen. Otherwise, it, if people were doing updates, this wouldn't happen in the first place, right? But people aren't. And so what they do is they target the command infrastructure behind the scenes. So when they take out the command and control or the 2C servers... What does that mean? Because like the, the botnet is controlled by one central... Yeah. You know, computer that's telling so them what to do. Usually it's every couple of seconds your webcam will reach out to a central server and say, hey, do you have any instructions for me? Okay. 
And most of the time it would be no. And then the the people who run these networks, they go on the dark web and they sell access to it. Like you could rent the TrickBot network for $10,000 for an hour. It's just like AWS. Um, yeah. <laughs> they call it's it malware as a service, actually. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like you, yeah. we've reached a critical like use of that buzzword when it's now. <laughs> by, by the way, your Foscam's pinging right in right now. <laughs> oh, <good>. so. <laughs> is that why great. Netflix is always buffering even though I'm on fiber at home? Oh, and well, you know. <laughs> that happens. And uh, so in this case, you know, all those IoT devices are trying to reach back to servers that aren't there anymore. Okay. And so they've kind of taken that piece out. So basically, whoever ran the TrickBot network would have to put up new command and control servers, and then they would have to reinfect all of those devices. Well, hopefully by this point, networks are aware of the exploits that were used and, you know, endpoint protection, all that will be better at protecting it. So they'll have to come up with some kind of new method to be able to spread that around. Yeah, I think it was Trick Daddy that was running it. Now, <laughs> Trick Daddy. my question is, if they knew where that machine is and, and what the IP address is and what ISP it's on, can they not go after this this person or, or people that, that set this up? So the problem is they, they use fake email accounts okay. and they set up with like my student information from the University of Florida. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the FBI it. comes and knocks at Don's house like, no, I didn't do that. And Daniel, you've, you've messed around with this a bit, right? Like it's not hard to set up a cloud hosting service under a fake identity, is it? No, no. It's uh, sock puppets are a real thing where you're just like using fake information. They have uh, different email servers that allow you to uh, basically, you know how you have to do some verification if you oh, don't okay. want to link back to yourself. There's just open uh, mail uh, services that will allow you to do that kind of thing. I do it all the time for getting information. I don't want to get marketed to you. Yeah, marketing. we learned about that on our so webinar. Right, Daniel, exactly. Daniel right. taught us that yeah. all those were fake email addresses. Thanks. Fake, fakeity, fake, fake. Thanks, Daniel. It's fun. Uh, but yeah, then once once you have that in place, uh, like Don said, if they took it down, you just have to rebuild all that, which would be time and effort. But ultimately, they're, they're probably going to see a resurgence of some change because when it comes to especially... Uh, like closed source exploits. Yeah, we know that TrickBot does this, but are they sitting on TrickBot 2.0 that will evade all those malware signatures and, and the way that it works so that it can get by it? I'll, I'll be interested in seeing to uh, whether or not that happens and, and how effective that yeah. becomes and how they can stop uh, a resurgence of that same botnet. And I think they mentioned in the article that there were a couple of botnets that were shut down like this before, and they did they manage did survive, to come back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just new command and control servers, and then they start to spread all over again. Well, that's yeah. the key. I mean, you know, I'm always looking for the the takeaway, the lesson learned here, and the lesson to me is the same as as a company needs to have backups. Just right, give you know, up. Site. <laughs> <laughs> have your have your botnet, you know, backed up all the time. That's so. It. You, you know, if it gets taken down, you yeah. can you can turn around and you, fire it up again. You got to take your command and control servers and make them hybrid cloud. That's you know? right. You got to right. spread them across more than one right. provider. I don't want to be in an availability zone that goes down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get C2 traffic. Yeah. Do you think they're calling like <laughs> AWS when when they go down? Going, I, I'm my botnet cannot even call yeah. home right now. I think what's important here is that my botnet's down. Yeah. <laughs> And Daniel, did I say it wrong? I said 2C. Is it C2? C2, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, noob. Yeah. Or C and C <laughs> command and control. This is embarrassing. Command and conquer servers. Command and conquer servers. <laughs> yep. That's right. Oh, man. That was a great. Build game. another battleship. <laughs> That's what my, my UF data probably says is this guy played a lot of command and conquer on our, <laughs> on our network. On their network. Because I did. All right. Our next article is also over at ZDNet and also about Microsoft. And we didn't really get into that part with the last one. But, yeah, Microsoft helped and all these other companies uh, <laughs> I helped. helped. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but our, our next one here, uh, Microsoft's VS Code comes to Raspberry Pi and Chromebook. New version 1.5 update is out. And the Visual Studio Code is available for Linux ARM v7 and ARM64 devices. Um, so that means I can run... a, a a version of Visual Studio on a Raspberry? Well, it, it's VS Code, which is really like a super glorified text editor, uh, but it has kind of taken the world by storm. I know I'm, I'm a big Sublime text user, but VS Code is basically a feature parody with Sublime, and everybody was really surprised when Microsoft released this as an Electron app. It could run on Linux, Mac, and Windows. Now they branched out even further, and in this case, you know, your Raspberry is probably running Linux. They already had VS Code for Linux, so the significant part here is that it's for an ARM processor. Mm -hmm. So they're actually doing compiled builds now to support ARM processors, which is good because we are seeing more and more systems starting to adopt that. Apple is going to be adopting that next year on more of their systems. Is that what's on a Raspberry? Is it an ARM? Yeah. Yep. Okay. All, all of the Raspberry Pis are ARM processors. So I'm running XP on mine after it leaked last week. You know, I... I 
don't think somebody could cross compile that. Maybe. No, I did it. I did it. <laughs> I think that'd be a challenge. <laughs> so, um, you know, drivers would obviously be the big issue there. But VS Code, uh, if you're running it on a Raspi, Raspis really don't have the horsepower to compile code. So, like the real time debugging that VS Code does doesn't work so well. But what Microsoft was pointing out was they've got this new cloud service that you tie to where VS Code is the front end, but it's actually being compiled in the cloud. And so with that, you could actually have a Raspi as a full development environment, and it'll perform great. So good luck to all the companies that take the uh, nice, expensive computers away from your developers and give them Chromebooks <laughs> and Raspi's <laughs> yeah. and go, no, 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 this is what you have now yeah. compiled in the cloud. <laughs> I, I think I saw some of our devs just tear their clothes off and run through the streets. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you, speaking of our devs, um, got nice new computers. Know, they all built custom computers specifically optimized to be able to compile code faster. So, you know, they did all these tests and stuff like they built machines for that. But if you compile in the cloud, it, you have access to practically infinite resources. So they could have gone with a cheap Chromebook and, and done that. I guess you got to figure out that when that that cost makes up for itself, it, yeah, because you're paying for all that uh, that processing time, I guess, versus paying to build the computer up front. So. Yeah, I mean, if you can get away with a thirty-dollar Raspberry, I guess you maybe need a monitor and a keyboard, maybe a mouse. You don't even need the mouse at that point. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> All right, you got to pay extra for the mouse. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's the way to go. Well, that's kind of cool. That's uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's something that we're going to see a lot of businesses take advantage of, but it's a kind of a cool project. Yeah, it's more for the makers, I think. Sure, hobbyists. Yeah, students and things like they that. They get all well. those bells and whistles in there, like. Uh, it that that kind of stuff like autocomplete and these these uh, code editors these editors that it just annoys me because I always I'm like ah oh, stinking tab that's not what I wanted and why are you filling that out with the wrong name so that kind of stuff is is not up my alley but I I remember um, watching like Justin's stuff man he's like a wizard when you're watching him crank through all these. Because you're like, how's features. he typing that fast? But it's yeah. actually auto. And you're like, you know, what filling. the hell? I mean, it fills in. It'll fill in a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff, especially if you've defined blocks of, of code that you're going to reuse or whatever, it'll yeah. it'll grab all that and go, oh, just pop it right in. See, I use I use hackertyper.com. <laughs> hackertyper.com. That, that one's a favorite. Uh, yeah, is it Emacs all the way, baby. <laughs> hackertyper.io. Yeah, and that's Daniel, what have you have you seen that? What? No, I haven't seen that. So oh. you go to the web page, and for you, everybody listening out there in TV right, land, hackertyper.io. Uh, it basically brings up a terminal. And no matter what you push on the keyboard, it starts typing code. Oh, oh I have seen and this. And you yes. can just bang on the keyboard and people think that you're really Mr. Robot or whatever. <laughs> That's the total, like, yes, yeah, CSI and all those shows, yep. they have to just be using that because you're, you're just typing at ridiculous breakneck speeds. And you're like, how is that happening? Unless... <laughs> yeah. Unless they're actually really good. There that is go. oh, happening uh, from Hacker Type. I'm going to see how well it works on my phone. Oh, I, I, <laughs> oh not at all. <laughs> I've done it for hours at my desk, and people will walk by and go, he is busy. Don't, don't. Yeah. You know, oh, so man. Look I at didn't that know guy he coded. Yeah. yeah. No, he's coding today. Yeah. Guy is amazing. Next level. Nope. Yeah. Hacker Typer. Um, I always like those uh, films like Antitrust or whatever, and somebody's writing code, and then someone will come behind him and that that's nice. Or I, I like when they're good. doing it out loud, too, and they're narrating, like, just. Yeah. Bypassing the firewall. Yeah, yeah. Almost there. We're in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is a Unix system. I know that. Yeah. Jurassic uh, Park. Jurassic Park, yeah. yeah. Classic. All right. Uh, our next article is not really an article as much as a, a blog post, a blog post yep. from <laughs> flings.vmware.com. And I, we were joking before uh, with with the production team. I said, you guys always throw me these words, and I don't know <laughs> if, I, if I say a word or if it's just the letters. So I'm going to go with my guess on this one. E-Sexy Arm Edition, <laughs> now available from VMware. That, was that right? It is that's E-Sexy. It. You nailed e, it. Capital E, capital S, capital X, and then a little I. This one's just E-S-X-I. Damn it. Yeah. But I like yours better, though. I like though. E-Sexy yeah. better. Yeah, they need E-Sexy. a PR team. VMware, say VMware probably should like that better. <laughs> so VMware is bringing E-Sexy back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, they have released Yowza. a version of E-S-X-I, which is their hypervisor, the part, you know, the, the core piece of vSphere. Uh, so they've released their hypervisor that will actually run on ARM, and not just ARM, it will run on a Raspberry Pi. And so what they've done is they've created a build of ESXi design for the Raspberry Pi 4. And so if you have a Raspberry Pi 4, either the 4 gig or the 8 gig model, you can drop ESXi on it and start spinning up virtual machines. Now, Raspberry Pis are not very powerful, so you might be asking yourself, why would I want to do that? In this day and age of Kubernetes and containers and Linux VMs, 
you can actually spin up quite a bit of things running on a single Raspberry Pi. It's actually pretty darn impressive. So to have three or four containers running with a gig or two of RAM each, you could actually do like a mini Kubernetes setup. So if you're learning, practicing, or just doing like local development and then shipping it up into AWS, a Raspberry Pi becomes a valuable development environment. So I know that's two Raspberry Pi articles in the same week, but there's just some really cool stuff coming out right now. Yeah, but the argument for for making the engineers get rid of those really fancy computers they just built and using Raspi's just keeps getting better. I know. When you see a bunch of uh, IT Pro TV desktops on eBay next week, you'll yeah, know what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don's just going to walk into the dev room and be like, all right, you bunch of money suckers. <laughs> Here's what's about to occur. <laughs> now, Don, you've got that really cool Raspi cluster that you've been yeah. playing with. I mean, yeah. would something like that you know, be able to be even more... Yeah, be even more powerful on, on something like this? I would say this is better. Uh, you know, with the cluster, you have to use the Raspberry Pi compute modules, which only have a gig of RAM each. So you can't have anything that runs over a gig of RAM. Well, like your Kubernetes master needs to have more than a gig of RAM. So already you've got to put the master somewhere else. But here, you can actually assign two gigs of RAM to one VM for the master and then a gig of RAM for a couple other nodes and, and perform everything in place. So uh, until the compute module four comes out, I think, this solution, ESXi running on top of like an eight gig Raspberry Pi four would be really cool. Hmm, interesting. Are you gonna get one, try it out? I ordered one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had a four gig model, like, but I like ordered this? an eight gig. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Cool. But I mean, you're gonna put this on there and yeah, and give it yeah, a, give so it a whirl. see what it's like. Because I mean, you know, usually if if I'm trying to mess around with ESX, I'll take an old laptop or a desktop that we've got laying around. But a Raspberry is a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, it sure is. Very cool. All right, we'll check that out again over at VMware.com. Uh, they've got all the details on that one. Let's move on to our next story. This is at ArsTechnica.com. Apple pays $288,000 to white hat hackers who had run of company's network. A hacker, a hacker team was led by a 20-year-old finds 55 vulnerabilities. 11 of them are critical. And, and this is the kind of stories you like to see that, you know, white hat hackers doing it the right way. And uh, it, or something like this, is, is this specific bounties that a company like Apple will put out? Or is this just random stuff that they find and, and they just kind of come up with the price then at that point? So Apple has a bounty posted based on severity for the bugs. And so, you know, if you do a critical uh, bug, then, uh, you know, they pay a higher value. If it's just like a severe or whatever, then it's a little bit lower. The thing is, these guys found a ton. All said and done, they found 55 different vulnerabilities. They were able to gain full access to Apple's internal network. They were able to gain full access to people's iCloud accounts and email, uh, their iCloud storage. I mean, these guys had the run of the land inside of Apple, and they did responsible disclosure. They shared everything with Apple. The first batch they gave them, uh, somewhere here in the article, uh, they ended up getting paid something like $23,000. And then right around the corner, Apple sent a check for another 250000 or something. And then they're saying that there's potentially more. They still have other bugs yeah. that were reported. So from Apple's perspective, paying, like it sounds like a lot, $288,000. But if they had an actual data breach, it would cost them millions and millions of dollars in penalties and fines, not to mention the PR debacle, like the, the stuff there. And Apple's got a ton of money. They've got billions of dollars in the bank. So this is totally a good deal for Apple. And it makes me wonder, is Apple not hiring really good pen testers to test out their network? You know, Here's this independent organization that found all this stuff. Whoever is officially doing the pen testing for Apple should really reevaluate the job they're doing. Well, you got to remember, Don, it's... When a pen test, how long does that typically last, right? If you were a couple Apple, of you'd weeks. think all the time. Well, they, they, <laughs> if they're Apple, they probably have, like, red teamers, right? They, they're so yeah. big. They have so much money. They probably have a red team that is constantly after them. But they act more like APT, right? They're coming after them as a nation-state hacker would, as <clears throat> some uh, advanced threat that would want to infiltrate an Apple, or these guys are just a bunch of bug bounty hunters going, man, here's your here's your web infrastructure. I was able to do a lot with with just that, and make some money, figure yeah. out some some issues that you're having, get them closed up. So good on Apple that they have a responsible disclosure and that they pay out good money to bring in obviously very bright people to try to find those flaws and then get them. And they said within hours they were getting these things triaged. 
Yeah, and so. but I don't think they brought in these people at all. Like these people are just kind of on no, their own. No, no, no. These people are on their own. They're just bug hunters. Just like Hacker One or, yeah. or yeah. places like Correct. that. Correct. Yeah. I just think if I if I had <clears throat> billions of dollars in the bank and you know your average pen test, it, they can range in price, right? If you do a week long pen testing exercise, depending on the assets, you know, you can spend between say ten and fifty thousand dollars. Let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars to have a pen test team come in and, and test for a week. I would schedule 52 companies, <laughs> one a week, all year long, and drop the, was that 50 million or whatever? Yeah, I mean, 500,000. When you have billions of dollars in the bank, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, well, when, when you assume that, uh, you know, th- there are still going to be things that fall through the cracks, but right. 55 things, 11 critical <laughs> is right. not a couple things. So I well, bet they go out and try to hire this kid, and he says, no, I, I, I can actually make a lot more doing it this way, the way you guys are paying. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're such a large entity, though, that it's that yeah. it's that crowd. So it's almost like the open source community looking for bugs, right? You've got so many people that are able to, and you're thinking, well, these are just five guys, probably a five really smart guys Great who, who, I mean, if you've never tried to like look through what a web application and the depth and breadth of those things can be, it's, it's a lot. And I, I agree with Don, like they got a lot of money. There's no reason that they shouldn't have a, a very large full fledged security team. It's just never going to catch. It. it just goes to show you, it doesn't matter how large the company doesn't matter how much money they have. There's always going to be problems to find, and every day they make a change to their code or their systems, you start with zero, right? You're you're going, okay, what we did yesterday is now yesterday, and today is today. We need to restart again. So every time they make a change, they create a new environment. That's why people that work on these large bug bounty programs that continue to find vulnerabilities, it's like, how are we still finding vulnerabilities? Well, we made a change. We Something changed. We did something new here. We took that down. We spin this up. And now we've, it's a completely different environment. That river is always changing. So that's why things like bug bounties are so uh, helpful. A, you don't have to pay a staff. You just pay when they find issues. And obviously they're doing a good job of like, oh, you, you gave us something. Let's test it. Let's figure out whether or not it's, it's legit. If it is, get it fixed. I, I, I get what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying. But I guess I, I just have a hard time thinking about like you – know, the Apple people, they, I, I use an iPhone, right? I, I use some Apple devices and how well does it work when they <laughs> work fine. And when Tim cook gets up in front of Congress or whoever, you know, puts on his smarmy bastard attitude and is like only a company company like Apple can protect your data. We care about user privacy. Like to, to give us that line, yeah. have billions of a trillion dollar valuation, big company and not have the best security posture of any other company on the planet i mean they're a technology company if this was they may uh, have the best security posture that's the thing like they they actually screwed right i mean listen i've sat i've sat on (laughs) panels with security experts and you know what they say about the state of security it's a tire fire there there is no good security out there we're just doing the best we can what was it in aliens 2 we're all gonna die yeah yeah. (laughs) we're screwed yeah yeah maybe we got them demoralized (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's it It's, it's just it, security is so hard that it's exactly right. We're doing the best we can, and the, and they very well may be doing the best that anybody can do, and still are falling short. I think Tim Cook should try that line next time he's at Congress. Well, uh, security is hard, Congressman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, by the way, security, uh, Congressman, I've got your data right here. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a bunch of money. I paid some guys. I'm yeah. going to jail. I'm going to jail. <laughs> uh, I don't think I am. I've got billions of dollars. Yeah. I uh, I hope you're right, Daniel. But I'm a little skeptical, and I kind of feel like this means that Apple is not doing as much as they say they are as far as protecting our data. Well, they say they've only processed about half of those uh, 55 um, things that were submitted so far, and they expect the payout could exceed $500,000 by the time it's all said and done. So Mm -hmm. good for them, and uh, I'm sure they'll be looking at some other networks as well. Well, we've got uh, one more thing to get to today. This is our WTF article for the week, and I play my WTF intro but it's it's not playing so insert it here in your mind <laughs> he he is saying wtf about his wtf intro <laughs> actually we could, we could play it right now great so we just put it in in post there um <laughs> all right so this one is from cnn.com uh, a former austin library employee is accused of stealing 1.3 million dollars 
in printer toner. And oh, I should have asked Mohit if that uh, that's why he left Austin. <laughs> <laughs> like Couldn't how, print anywhere. How yeah, did you fund some, uh... this uh, this startup? <laughs> you had a $1.3 million in Next question. Next question. <laughs> so I guess this was a guy who worked there, and he was the one who bought the toner. And you think, oh, yeah, that's an expensive thing, and we have to buy that all the time. And he's just buying extra and throwing it up on eBay, which... I mean, you probably wouldn't notice until you did an audit and said, really, what, what are we printing? Did we yeah. print all the books that are in the library? <laughs> so they, and that's what they did, right? They did an audit, and they found where they, uh, they had spent $1.5 million in toner over the course of, it was like a 10-year period, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a long time. And during that time, oh, 2007 to 2019, so longer. Yeah. And, uh, and what they found was that they should have spent about $150,000 in toner, so 10 times the usage. So this guy is buying like a, a, a 10 pack of toner, using one and selling the other nine or, or whatever model he was following. He was pulling money out like crazy. Uh, and he went a step further and was using like one of the, the government credit cards to buy things like VR headsets he had access and video to games. 10, 10 library credit cards. Wow. And was spreading out what stuff What library around. is this? this? I mean, the Austin the library Austin is amazing. Is this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, City of Austin. Yeah, well, and, and he worked in finance, right? 18 grand. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, so I guess he figured he could cover his tracks. Because that, to me, that's when you get caught. I mean, you always you always get a little bit too greedy, and you start buying an Oculus and, and, and a <laughs> robotic vacuum. That's the thing that tips him off is, oh, we bought an Oculus. Start an audit. Well, and the, yeah, the, the library's going, do, Nobody do can afford those. we have a Roomba those. here? We don't, we don't have a Roomba. <laughs> it runs at night. Do we have a drone? Yeah. We don't have it. There's a drone on this receipt yeah. i don't think we have a drone. and that was another part of how he got nailed was that several of the invoices when they went back and pulled them had his his home address as the delivery address oops and apparently had like Smart. a pallet of toner in his garage so, so <laughs> what's the, what's the line from office space how come you know the uh the mafiosos can be so good at crime and smart guys like us could suck so badly at it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey this guy made it for 12 years i think that's that's pretty good where's he at now uh, he's in jail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you for, go. For the next 12 years, at least, probably. But uh, does it say that he's been convicted yet or just uh, no, he's been accused? Arrested. He's, a, he's accused at this point. So, yeah, we're, we're going through the legal process. And I'd love to come back and find um, what the actual time is for something like this. Here's the thing, though. He's a city employee, so they probably still couldn't fire him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get your job back when you yeah. come out of prison. He's on paid leave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Administrative leave. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a lot of fun. He's going to be the finance guy for the prison he's at. <laughs> yeah, is there a uh, is there a lifespan on toner, or you know, he could have held on to this for oh, a while. It, it does last a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's a matter of the cartridge still fits the you know the machine. So is that machine outdated? Yeah, you just can't let it get too hot and. You'll find that like HP will use the same toner cartridge for multiple models. Oh, okay. So there, there might be a huge resale market here. Yeah, I think that's what he was doing was like reselling it. Yeah, garage in Texas doesn't seem too hot, so I'm sure the toner is, is just fine. But I don't know. I wonder would would a garage in Texas get hot enough to fuse toner? I don't. I don't oh, think that so. Oh, that would be pretty dang hot, wouldn't it? Yeah, like the Corona wire in a printer gets really hot. Yeah. So I I don't think the garage would be hot enough. Boy, wouldn't that be the, the best if he goes to sell his toner? <laughs> and it's just a brick. <laughs> a it's a toner brick. Yeah. yeah. That's how he got caught. But uh, that's that's a shame. Shame for him. Shame for the, the people of Austin yeah. who have paid for this toner. They that's true. They should get it back. I guess they you know, should release the toner back out to the people. Well, I think if they go paperless, it'll fight crime. <laughs> yeah, do you think he had a plan in place for, yeah. for what happens when they when they digitize? He's, he's just a... Uh, or that was the drones and the yeah. <laughs> robot vacuums. And maybe he was some sort of like eco-terrorist, and that was how he was like, he's going to pilfer the system of millions of dollars. Stick so it to the man. They'll go digital and stop printing so much. He was actually trying to do a public service. That's Isn't right. Toner like... He's, a, he's the victim here. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's Toner or, or ink itself, but it's like the most expensive like liquid, like more expensive than gas and, and all these uh, things when you say like the price per ounce of this stuff. Is, oh, that, yeah. that's probably the ink. Yeah. Yeah. Toner, not so much. But toner, anyway, great so story. Um, glad to see he, he was caught and... Just a lesson to all of you out there. If you're if you're stealing, don't get too greedy. Stealing is <laughs> yeah, bad. Just steal a little bit. Yeah, just steal a little bit. And don't <laughs> think that means you can steal a little bit more. Yeah. Stealing is bad, okay? Yeah. yeah. If you steal, you're bad. Drugs. Drugs also. <laughs> Poor. Bad decision. Uh, How hey, did this go to drugs? <laughs> because, you know, he Guilty did Guilty conscience? No, he did yeah. the, mm -hmm. the, the... You're high right now, aren't you? 
Look, that that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I don't see how that's related. I'm going to change the subject. Uh, we have a webinar coming up on Thursday, October 29th, Lessons from the Dark Web, using a Raspberry Pi onion router for uh, secure internet access. And I feel like Don is somehow on Raspberry Pi's payroll uh, <laughs> with two stories today, and he's showing how to make a Tor router out of it. So this uh, it was actually an idea we got from a viewer. Uh, they, they wanted another dark web uh, webinar, and I was out of ideas, and they suggested this one. So I, I did some research, and there's like multiple ways to make a Tor router or proxy. Uh, I decided to do the hardest one, which is to do a transparent proxy, which is pretty awesome. Uh, so we're going to set that up. I'll show you guys all the steps to do it. And basically, you can have machines running through the Tor network where the machines don't even know about it at all. No client, no wow. uh, configuration, just automatic. It's pretty slick. I like this. Now, what's the, the business tieback to this? Because I know we've talked, like in the in the other ones, it was, hey, how to see if my data from my company is out sure. there on the dark web. What What's the tie? So this scenario would be like if you are on untrusted networks, uh, you know, like really untrusted networks, you're in a foreign country as an operative <laughs> or something like that. Uh, you could basically bring up this box that it would build the Tor connection so that your device never actually touches the regular network. Hmm. It's never exposed at any point. So your machine will have zero internet access. You plug it into the Raspberry, and now it will have a connection via Tor. It's never exposed. All right. I'm down so, with this. Yeah. Yep. You gotta get me one of them pies. You can buy one. You buy one of those magic, those uh, mystery boxes off the tour now. There you go. Don, what's your affiliate code? Why is it for so wet and heavy? <laughs> what's this white powder on everything? Yeah, uh, weird. All right, well, that is Thursday, October 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Head over to itpro.tv slash webinars to register for that. You can also check out the one that Daniel just did, which was our second most viewed webinar uh, of all time so far in terms of the live audience. Um, that was Secrets of IoT, Are Your Devices Spying on You, where he finally hacked into that Foscam that we've been talking about for years and years and it was just as frightening as you would expect, but uh, but very cool. Uh, a lot of great interaction on that one. So thank you, Daniel, for a, a great webinar. We try. Yeah. Uh, and also, while you're on that internet, head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado. You can request a team trial for your company and see all the cool features available to teams uh, of two to two million uh, available on IT Pro TV. And you can also get a 30% off coupon code for the lifetime of your personal account. That is over at go.itpro.tv slash technado. And yeah, I think that's, uh, that's it this time around. So thank you to uh, Mohit again for uh, telling us all about symmetry systems and the cool stuff there and joining us. And um, thank you guys for your input on these great articles this week. You shut your mouth. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> all right, I've got to go uh, order some toner. <laughs> so we'll see you next week right here on Technado with Don Pizzette.